Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. It's so, so, so good to be back with you. We've missed the last couple of weeks. I was out in Florida covering the Olympic qualifiers. And then last week, just some scheduling and personnel availability meant we weren't able to record a podcast. But we are back and we are here to talk Major League Baseball. To do that, I am joined by the one and only Matt Eddy. Matt, we are now at a point in the season where all but one team has played 60 games And that's a notable marker because last year, after 60 games, the season was over. And we've already seen some pretty amazing things happen this season. Everything Shohei Otani and Jacob deGrom are doing. We've seen Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Ronald Acuna Jr., and Fernando Tatis elevate their games even more. There's just been so many awesome, amazing moments already early in the Major League season. I'm thrilled there's still more to come as opposed to, oh, here we go. We've reached the end of the line. It feels a lot more natural. And honestly, it's just nice looking up and knowing we've still got, for most teams, 90 plus games to go yeah 100 percent. there's there's nothing like the rhythm uh, of a a full major league season it's it's one of a kind absolutely with that and again there's been a lot of incredible individual performances this season but baseball is dealing with some very serious issues and there's been a lot of talk about them recently what for you right now is the biggest storyline of the 2021 season because there's a lot of converging factors here what for you stands out the most for me, it's the injuries, uh, both in terms of how it's impacted contending teams and as somebody who's active in fantasy baseball, how it's impacted fantasy rosters. But for the purposes of this podcast, you can really see the toll injuries have had on some of the you know, supposed preseason favorites. Um, you know, these teams are playing well, but they could be, be playing even better. Uh, examples include the, the Mets, the Dodgers, um, the Brewers and the Rays. And, you know, and the Twins have been impacted by injuries quite a bit, too, so they have not been playing well to this point. Uh, I think you saw an interesting stat about the um, how injuries have impacted the Mets. Yeah, so as calculated by a, a group called Man Games Lost, and they kind of put together all sorts of injury data for all four sports, uh, they calculated uh, as of last week that the Mets had lost the most wins above replacement in terms of the players they've lost due to injury more than any other team in Major League Baseball. And despite that, the Mets are still in first place. So obviously it's encouraging that despite those losses, they're in first place in their division and are going to start getting these guys back. But there's no question the injuries have been a big storyline early in the season. Ken Rosenthal at The Athletic wrote about it in May that injured list placements were up 15% uh, from the first month of 2019 to the first month of 2021. And there was a general sense that going from 60 games to 162, we were going to see more injured list placements. There's been a lot of soft tissue injuries, hamstrings, obliques. Again, it was expected, but at the same time, when you see so many talented players going down so early in the season, it does have a huge effect on how the season has played out so far, and it will continue to have a huge effect on what's to come. 
I agree. In in terms of storylines for you, what's at the top of your list? Yeah, so the biggest thing for me that stands out in Major League Baseball is the lack of offense. Entering today, teams are batting 238, 313, 398, the lowest batting average since 1968, uh, the 24.1% strikeout rates, the highest strikeout rate in Major League history. So again, lowest batting average since they lowered the mound, highest strikeout rate in Major League history. But the thing that is also problematic in conjunction with this is right now the average time of a nine-inning game is three hours and eight minutes. That is the longest in major league history. It'd be one thing if we had this lack of offense, but pitchers were carving and games were going 220, 230, 240. Instead, what we have now is less action than ever before at a time when games are longer than they've ever been. That's not a good formula. At the end of the day, Major League Baseball is an entertainment product. Less action and more time is not a successful formula moving forward. And so, and again, I want to go back to people talk about, oh, well, the game has changed. Yes, it has. The game is constantly changing. But we don't have to go back to 1975 to find a better balance here. Going back, let's just start with 2006 across the board. Batting average, on base percentage, slugging percentage, everything was 25 to 50 points higher. The average time of game was 248. It was 20 minutes shorter. So you have more action and shorter time. That's in 2006. I think objectively, a better product is more action in a shorter time frame. If you decide that that's too far back, let's just go back to 2016, five years ago, once again all three slash lane categories across the board were higher 15 to 20 points or so. And the average time of game was shorter. That's the element of it. It's not just that offense is down, it's offense is down while games are also taking longer than ever. Yeah, I agree. There's two trends that might be interrelated that I, I do find encouraging. I agree with your points. Um, and that number one we're going to talk about in more depth later is, is foreign substances on the ball. We might be seeing offenses increase as MLB attempts to crack down on, on their usage. But I also saw in the um, Joe Sheehan newsletter today that so far in June, batting average is up 10 points and um, slugging more than 20 points and strikeouts down slightly. So we are trending toward a better brand, but I think your point still holds. Well, that's why when a lot of people were freaking out in April, I wanted to be a little more conservative because we see offense increases every year once we get into the summer months. And there's no question that an increase was coming and we were starting to see it early on. But at the same time, an increase from 230s to 250s, again, if games are still taking longer than ever, you still want to make some adjustments here to ensure that there's more offense and hopefully as well the pace of play improves. And with that, one of the big topics last couple of weeks has been Major League Baseball is about to start enforcing the rules on the books that oversee foreign substances on the ball. And there's been a lot of talk about how much of an effect it's going to really have. And, and just talking to pitchers, talking to managers, there seems to be a general consensus. If enforced effectively, and that is a kicker here, we still need to see how effective the enforcement actually is. But if enforced effectively, this is going to send offense through the roof. The stuff that's being put on the balls now is increasing spin rates by three to 400 RPMs. It's more movement. In some cases, it's more velocity. And on top of it, 
it's just a situation right now where, you know, sunscreen and rosin, that helps you get a grip on the ball. The stuff right now, people are voicing concerns about hit batters. The stuff right now isn't about grip. It's about getting more spin, more friction. Sunscreen and rosin does the trick for the grip. This is purely about spin. I think enforcing that effectively, offenses are going to jump in a big, big way. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you completely. You know, it, and that spin is desired because the game is increasingly more of a north-south spin-to-win style of pitching. You know, four-seam ride up, curveball down, um, and some of this, some of these sticky substances help pitchers accomplish that. The biggest thing is, and I think it's important here that Major League Baseball is turning to rules on the books to help counteract what we've seen just bottoming out of offense in Major League Baseball because a lot of the experimental rules that they've put in play in the minors, frankly, should never see the light of day in Major League Baseball. It's much better to take these incremental steps first and force what's already on the books. This is the first step, and it's the right thing to do. Again, we need to see how effective the enforcement is in practice, but at the very least, Major League Baseball, to their credit, is focusing on the right thing here. You just wish that they had started enforcing it when it was happening as opposed to when it reached a crisis point. And it has escalated the last three or four years. Again, pitchers have been scuffing up baseballs, using spitballs, using pine tar, doing all sorts of things for decades. That's not new. But really, we have seen over the last three or four years, especially the potency of the concoctions. Teams are hiring chemists whose sole job is to find the best mixture of stuff that will allow pitchers to generate more spin. And it's gotten to a point where this isn't about gripping the baseball anymore. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. This is about trying to increase your spin to degrees that you cannot do naturally. It is not physically possible. So that's the first thing that they're doing that I think is the right thing to do. But there's a second rule that is currently on the books that I also think that if they started enforcing it, it would help offense rise even more. And again, this is not something that needs to be negotiated with the union. This is not a new rule. This is on the books as is, and Major League Baseball could start enforcing it tomorrow if they really wanted. That's rule 8.04. When no one's on base, a pitcher has 12 seconds to deliver his next pitch. And if he doesn't throw it in 12 seconds, a ball is called. Right now, we see a number of pitchers taking 25 seconds, 27 seconds, 28 seconds. Pedro Baez takes over 30 seconds on average. And this is something that, again, Major League Baseball's two biggest issues right now in terms of on the field what's happening, depressed offense, pace of play. Again, time of a nine-inning game is the longest it has ever been at a time when there is less action than ever before. I do think Major League Baseball, as an entertainment product, if they started enforcing this, you would also see offense go up, game times go down. And I do think it is something that Major League Baseball should look at enforcing. We've identified the problems. How can you fix it? This is not something about instituting a new pitch clock. This is already on the books. They can enforce it tomorrow if they wanted to. And I think it would be the right thing to do. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and having experienced the pitch clocks at AAA, they, they make no tangible difference to the experience. You know, and this is, I know that's independent of what you're saying, but if you think that it's going to change the experience, it's not going to. We need to see how effective the coming crackdown is in practice, but there's no question. And I will say this is something a lot of managers want because now it's not on them to have to rat out someone else and create potential problems. You know, I remember back in 2005 when the Angels were playing the Nationals and Jose Guillen was on the Nationals. He had left the Angels after a messy issue with Mike Sosha. He's on the Nationals. He informed Frank Robinson that Brendan Donnelly was using a foreign substance. So Robinson called for Donnelly to be checked. 
and it led to Sosha coming out and yelling at Frank Robinson and the bench is cleared and it's this whole hullabaloo. And then the next day, Sosha had Gary Majewski checked. It just became this whole back and forth and managers ratting each other out, which none of them want to do, especially because they know a lot of their own guys are using stuff. This takes it out of the manager's hands and it's just, hey, the rules are on the books. It's on the umpires to enforce it. And the other part of this I think is important is so many pitchers who aren't cheating feel like they have to because the guys who are generating higher spin rates are the guys getting more movement on their pitches and getting more strikeouts. This is especially true in the minor leagues. Those are the guys who are being promoted. If you don't start cheating, you start to feel like you're going to get left behind. And that's a really, really uncomfortable spot for a lot of players to be in, especially younger guys, 19, 20, 21, making no money in the minor leagues, trying to live their dreams. This is something that I think will help get rid of that. That will say, hey, Players no longer have to make the choice between I'm following the rules or I'm advancing my career. Because right now for a lot of players, those two things are at odds. Yeah, and this is echoes entirely the uh, performance-enhancing drugs dilemma of uh, 30 years ago. Same problem, just applied to pitchers. But... And not only that, this same problem except without the negative health effects. I mean, it's like pitchers can do mm-hmm. with really no risk to their bodies unlike steroids which led to some really serious long-term risks for everyone using them hitters and pitchers so those are two things that will help offense increase while also shortening game times particularly enforcing the rule on the books that hey get the ball you have 12 seconds to throw your next pitch when there's no one on base so those are two things that that i think will help major league baseball solve these two issues Matt, moving over into the positives, because again, this is a great game and we're seeing so many young players really take off and do some incredible things this year, even in the context of offense being at all-time lows. And chief among them are Ronald Acuna Jr., Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and Shohei Otani. And this is an interesting point because those were our top three prospects in the 2018 BA Top 100. And I want to revisit the discussion we had about who should be the number one prospect. So for those who don't know, the way we put together the BA Top 100 is our team of reporters spends months and months and months and months reporting on all these players, talking to scouts, talking to front office officials, both employed by the team and by other teams about who these players are, what they do well, putting grades on them, figuring out what their long-term potential really is. We put them all together and using our reporting, our knowledge, our insights. Uh, you put together a lot of data for us. We source it with general managers, assistant general managers, high-level front office officials all across the game. Because at the end of the day, we're reporting. We're trying to report what the industry sees, what is the industry consensus. But a lot of times there are a lot of close calls and we get together in our conference room and hash them out using the knowledge we've gleaned from our reporting over the course of the year and ultimately looking at some of the history. And in 2018, I remember going into the conference room in our office in Durham and we had a split camp based on everything we had learned over the past year, having seen these players. You went in thinking Vladimir Guerrero Jr. should be our number one prospect. J.J. Cooper went in thinking Shohei Otani should be our number one prospect. Josh Norris went in thinking Ronald Acuna Jr. should be our number one prospect. I don't remember what Ben Badler believed, but I went in and ultimately I pushed for Ronald Acuna Jr. And ultimately that was our pick as the number one overall prospect. And I have some very specific memories about this discussion and why we got there, but I wanted to throw it back to you. What are your thoughts about what these three have become? And just what are your memories of what your thoughts were about these three at the time they were prospects? Because again, these were our top three in the game. They were clearly standouts. 
but ultimately lining them up, it was both one of the most fun and challenging exercises, at least in my time at VA. Yeah, <clears throat> thinking back to that time, you know, uh, Guerrero Jr. is coming off a big year. We're at two levels of Class A. And kind of the hitting and, and power grades we were hearing and projected to achieve in the major leagues were startling for such a young player. And there was a sense that he could be Miguel Cabrera. And, and for me, that's what uh, elevated him to number one on my personal board. I think looking back, you know, Acuna was our minor league player of the year in 2017. You know, power, speed, up to AAA. Then, you know, next year he started making his mark in the majors. Uh, at the time, I, I do recall being concerned about the strikeout rate, which I think is something I would not emphasize going forward to the same degree I did in that case. You know, I'm not saying that Guerrero is the wrong choice, but I think to this point, Acuna has probably been the best of the three. Yeah, so for me, it was an interesting situation because I was assigned to write the Ronald Acuna Minor League Player of the Year feature, which meant I sat on him for a week in, well, in Durham when Gwinnett came into town to play Durham. Uh, I spent weeks reporting, telling his story, talking to the scouts who signed him, to the scouts who were watching him that year, to Braves player development people, to other players who were playing with him, to his managers and coaches and Gwinnett and really got to know who this player was inside and out while also seeing a lot of him for myself. That offseason, I was also assigned to be our quote-unquote Shohei Otani beat reporter. I mm -hmm. wrote the story about how the ex-big leaguers in Japan saw him and dove in with scouts who had Pacific Rim coverage, international scouting directors. And again, I actually felt the most insightful thing was that story I did where I talked to half dozen ex-big leaguers who had faced him, both as a pitcher and as a hitter, finding out what he can do, what his strengths are, what his weaknesses are. And I went in and pushed for Acuna. And the reason at the time was, uh, there was no question in my mind, this was a dynamic, powerful, athletic player who could do anything he wanted on a baseball field. This was a, a uniquely talented player that doesn't come around very often. The combination of athleticism, strike zone discipline, power, everything, speed, ability to play center, ability to play right, the arm. I mean, anything and everything you wanted. The effort was there. The makeup was there. I remember him <laughs> racing home on a chopper back to the pitcher. The attentiveness was there, the, the awareness, the focus, anything and everything you wanted to see. This was someone that was very clearly going to be a franchise player and one of the best players in Major League Baseball. In my estimation, based off what I'd seen, uh, the discussions I'd had, and clearly what scouts and front office officials around the game had seen. With Shohei Otani, based on everything I had done at the time, I had no doubts that he was going to be uh, a spectacular pitcher in Major League Baseball. The two concerns were, how is he going to hold up health-wise trying to do both? He had already had an ankle injury that year in Japan, required off-season surgery and only made five starts that year. So there were concerns about long-term, how healthy is he gonna stay, especially trying to do both. And at the time with him as a hitter, the question I had, it wasn't a doubt, but it was a question that needed to be answered. And this was something that came up speaking with a lot of the ex-major league pitchers who were in Japan, was how was he gonna handle velocity inside? One of the things that came up in the course of my reporting was, Japanese pitchers did not pitch Shohei Otani inside 
because no one wanted to be the guy who hit Shohei Otani in the front elbow, his right elbow, and caused him an injury that ruined his pitching career. The American pitchers pitched him inside and had a lot of success against him. So it was a situation where the general consensus was he's going to have to make this adjustment. We're not going to say he can't, but we just don't know. We have to see it before we can confidently say he's going to be an impact hitter in the major leagues. So in terms of the meeting, that for me was what put Ronald Acuna ahead was the injury concerns about Shohei Otani and then just being a little uncertain about what kind of hitter he was going to be in the major leagues. But again, I voted Otani too. It's not like I was like, oh, this guy's going to be terrible. I voted him too. I think I put a 70 on him. I might've put a 75 on him in the prospect handbook. I mean, a franchise caliber player to be sure. And I wrote the report in the handbook and said he has a chance to be a Cy Young Award winner hitting double digit home runs. There was no doubting his talent, but when you're kind of trying to find the line between who's one, who's two, that was the thought process. And so Acuna was our number one prospect. And I feel like today we, we as a staff, are very comfortable with having made that choice. Uh, would you say that's accurate? Uh, yeah, I think he is. I think he would be in retrospect the choice given what we knew at the time. But you could also say that Fernando Tatis Jr. or Juan Soto might be better than all three. <laughs> and Tatis, <laughs> was talking- a, Tatis was a top 10 prospect that year for us. I believe he was number eight uh, along with Bo Bichette. He was in that same range. And uh, Juan Soto had come off an injury and at the time was a little bit of a wild card. Uh, but one of the things with Otani that, that I think has been interesting is, is I want to circle back to you know the inside fastball thing. You remember he came in that spring training, and that was one of the things he struggled with. He made an adjustment with Eric Hinsky, who was the hitting coach at the time, kind of shortened his stride, and all of a sudden, he started taking off. And I, I remember specifically the moment where it was like, okay, he's got this. The Angels were in Kansas City, and Brandon Maurer threw him a 97-mile-an-hour fastball, high and tight, in on his hands, and Otani turned on it and hit it for a triple into the right center gap. And I remember it, that was the moment where I was like, he's got this. He's, he's, he's got it. And then a few days later, in a more high-profile game, Luis Severino threw him a 98-mile-an-hour you know, fastball inside on his hands. He turned on it and hit it for a home run. So, again, the Maurer pitch was the moment that I was like, he's got this. He, he has a chance to be a star both ways. This is legit. And the Severino pitch, I think, is when the rest of America realized it. Great athletes making adjustments, and that's what he's done. And again, Tatis was a top 10 prospect for us that year. The next year, he was our number two prospect behind Vlad Jr. And Soto, as you mentioned, was someone at that time who had been hurt. So he was a little bit of a wild card. But clearly by the next year, it was very clear this was a special talent. That that 2018 group was a pretty spectacular prospect group, just looking at it. I mentioned Bo Bichette in there as well. Yeah, for sure. Was that the closest debate you've had at, in your time at Baseball America, because I joined the staff in the middle of the 2016 season. So really I've only had 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, five years of being a part of these kind of number one prospect discussions. And even the first year, 2017, I was more just sitting back and listening to you and John and everyone else who had been doing it for a while. Where does this one rank in terms of the closest discussions or closest calls? Oh, the, the toughest one by far was Mike Trout versus um, Bryce Harper, both in, I think, 2011 and 2012. They were both prospect eligible. That one was epic because you have two who turned out to be franchise talents. Uh, Manny Machado was also in this general group. Um, so that was a really, really difficult one. <laughs> uh, and prior to that, the one that stands out in my time 
is uh, David Price versus Matt Wieters heading into, must have been 2008. Um, I think most of the staff was on the side of uh, Wieters, but to Jim Callis's credit, he was always Price, and he was right. The Price was right, and um, that, that one stands out. And then a few years prior to that, uh, Steven Strasburg versus Jason Hayward was also a tough one for us. But for me, Trout versus Harper is always the number one go-to for that discussion. And again, two great players. Obviously, Trout has been the better player of the two of them. But it's fun when you have two or three great players at the top. It's difficult, but it's much more fun to discuss that than looking around and saying, gosh, there's not a clear number one prospect this year. Luckily, Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't had that in my time where there's been a lack of options for number one. But I know there have been some years we look around and there's not totally over-inspiring candidate out there. Yeah, Jerickson Profar says hello. <laughs> yeah, that way. And I believe Dylan Bundy was number two that year as well. So again, it's not like that was a great prospect crop looking back at it. But Matt, moving forward, again, it's been fun looking back, but moving forward, we do have some teams who have surprised at this point in the season, both good and bad. And it's interesting. I think the combination of everyone being cooped up last year, combined with a 60-game season, everyone's a little more reactive than normal, even just through the first few weeks, month of the season. And again, I even fell victim to that a little bit. And I had to kind of check myself at one point, two, three weeks into the season on some guys and some teams. Mm -hmm. Last year was just so different. Everyone was stuck at home on edge for a number of reasons. And everything was such a sprint that one bad week really did make or break your season. Whereas we're back to normal now, everyone can take a deep breath, but I think people are still in that mode a little bit. So There's still a lot of baseball to be played, you know, where teams are after 60 games. It's obviously a good indicator of their true talent level, but there are a lot of teams who are in the playoffs after 60 games that fall out by the end of 162. And a lot of teams that aren't in after 60 games that are in at the end of 162. So there's a lot of baseball still left to be played. And I want to focus on two teams in particular who have surprised people in terms of where they are on the standings. And that is the San Francisco Giants and the Boston Red Sox. So the biggest question I have for you, Matt, looking at where these two teams are today, the Giants, they have the best record in the National League. This has been the best team in the NL to this point in the season by almost any measure. And the Red Sox, while they're not in first place in their division, they are one of the best teams in the American League. They're in second place behind only the Rays. Again, they're just shy of 40 wins, which puts them in the upper tier of teams in the AL. So these teams have been legitimately good. The question is, do you expect them to keep it up? Yeah, I would expect both to remain in the wild card race uh, and be, you know, have winning records and potentially win a wild card. I think the common link between the teams is um, smart ownership, uh, smart decisions made by the the front office, I should say. Uh, The idea being that they're going to attack their weakest points on the roster and bring those areas up to make the team overall more competitive. I think we're seeing so many Giants hitters, like, reach peak performances, even, you know, from the veterans like Brandon Belt and Buster Posey and Brandon Crawford, even the young players, they integrate into the lineup. So it's really an impressive feat they've done there. And, and the Red Sox, you probably can't understate the importance of Alex Cora coming back to manage them. I think the players have said as much. And I think those factors will continue to make these teams relevant. So I want to start with the Giants, who, again, coming into the year, 
general thought was the Potters and Dodgers were going to be atop this division. It was going to be a two-team fight, and the Giants would be good. Again, they were considered a third-place team, probably finished in that 83 to 84 win range. No one expected them, I don't think, to be terrible. I think at worst, you were looking at 77 wins, you know, 77 to 84, somewhere in there. But obviously, they've outperformed that. And I think looking at this team, the biggest thing that is going to determine whether they maintain this or not is pitcher health. And we can say that for a number of teams, but I think that's especially the case for the Giants. So I want to start, this offense is legit. We started seeing it kind of come together last year. Buster Posey came back after opting out of last season and has looked like the Buster Posey of old. He's been fantastic early in the year. Brandon Crawford has found a, a little bit of pep in his step and been fantastic offensively as well. The Giants right now are 11th in the majors and runs scored. They're fourth in the National League behind only the Dodgers, Braves, and Cubs. This is a real offense, so I don't think you should discount that. It just comes down to the pitching staff. So I think first and foremost, you have to give Farhan Zaidi and Scott Harris and the entire Giants front office a lot of credit. They did something very, very smart this offseason. You look at Alex Wood, Aaron Sanchez, Anthony Descalfani. All these guys have been good pitchers when healthy. They've just struggled to stay healthy. So what they did is, hey, let's take three guys who, again, have been good when healthy, give them one-year contracts, put them in a pitcher's park with a great defense behind them, and what do you know? They're pitching well. They've been really, really good for the Giants so far, and that's really helped lengthen the rotation a little bit. Kevin Gosman, we already knew, was a good pitcher, although he's been even better. Uh, but Johnny Cueto got hurt. These guys have stepped up. So, again, this has been just, I think, the result of a smart offseason by Giants front office in terms of how they attacked their starting rotation. The question is, are these guys all going to stay healthy? What does this starting rotation look like in August? Aaron Sanchez missed all of last season, is currently on the aisle right now. Alex Wood battled injuries each of the last two years. Anthony Desclafani has topped 125 innings once since the 2015 season. And even Johnny Cueto, he hasn't pitched more than 100 innings since 2017 and was on the injured list earlier this year. So the biggest question for the Giants is, what is this rotation going to look like when all these guys start getting into that 100, 125, 130, or 40 inning range in August? If these guys stay healthy, then yeah, the Giants absolutely have a chance to hang in this NL West race and, and win a wild card at least. But I think it's just hard, given the injury track record of these guys, to feel great about them all staying healthy. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, other other teams will have the same endurance questions with rotations based on last season. But you're right that these particular pitchers do have a, an elevated injury risk based on their precedent. Which leads me into the Red Sox, who are similar to the Giants in the fact that they have exceeded expectations. They're near the top of a very competitive division. And for me, the Giants and Red Sox actually mirror each other very, very well in this regard. Because again, with the Red Sox, look at Garrett Richards, who has been very, very good for them. And all season signing, that's bearing fruit for them. He hasn't thrown more than 100 innings in a season since 2015. If he goes more than six innings in his next start, he'll already be at the most innings he's thrown since the 2015 season. You look at Nate Uvalde, his injury history is well known. He hasn't topped 125 innings since the 2015 season. We've seen some guys like Nick Pavetta and Martin Perez outperform their career ERAs to date. I don't know how much longer that's going to last. We've seen Perez in particular get lit up in his last two starts. 
I think the Red Sox, speaking of great offenses, this is a legitimate offense. They can bang with anyone. If they have to win games 8-6, 9-7, they absolutely can. But again, I go back to are Garrett Richards and Nate Uvalde still going to be healthy and effective and pitching at 100% once we get into the dog days of August? And it's hard, I think, to predict that, and we just have to see what happens. And, and this Red Sox group is really walking a tight line. They have the second highest whip in the major league, second only to the Rockies. So you can see those base runners, you know, they might start scoring more frequently. Do you think that either of them, it sounds like you believe more in the Giants keeping it up than the Red Sox. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, because you have a Gosman is a legitimate you know, Cy Young finalist. The rest of those pitchers are good, and the offense, to me, is legit based on what we've seen the last two years. They've, they've figured something out offensively. I think that's fair. Again, every team is going to be dealing with pitchers and how they stay healthy given the shortened season. But I think especially these two groups, just the injury histories of these guys dating back, and again, in some cases all the way back, we're talking 2015, 2016, that's where the question is. The flip side, you have two teams, Matt, that are in last place or at least tied for a share of last place that I think a lot of people didn't expect to be at this point in the season. Those are the Twins and the Nationals. The Twins are currently tied with the Tigers for last in the AL Central. The Nationals are all alone in last place in the National East. The opposite question here of the Giants and Red Sox, do you believe either will bounce back? Yes, I do believe the Twins are going to regress upward to, you know, maybe not wild card necessarily, but I don't think they're a lost cause. I think the reasons being that their offense has been pretty good despite the, the pronounced struggles, which is most of their issue has been on the, the pitching side, particularly the bullpen has been shaky for them. When last I checked, they led the AL in relief losses for what that's worth. Had the lowest uh, war, I believe, for, for um, American League bullpens. But to the point of the offense, if they get Byron Buxton and Josh Donaldson playing at their all-star levels, that's going to do wonders for the whole team. I think, I think what we will, I think they've already had their worst stretch and will continue to move up. I think the biggest concern for the twins right now is, so they have the second worst ERA in the American league ahead of only the Orioles. It's worse than the angels and the context of major league baseball. It's worse than the angels. It's worse than the pirates. It's worse than a lot of teams who are definitely not known for their pitching depth. I think right now what's tough is it's hard to see a case where it bounces back so much to a point where you say, hey, they're right back on the fringes of wild card contention. Now they are getting Kenta Maeda back from injury today, actually. He struggled before going down. Maybe he comes back, he's healthy, and he returns to being the pitcher we've seen the last couple of years. But you look at this bullpen, you look at the back of the rotation, there's some pretty big holes there. And so again, are they going to have the second worst ERA in the American League when the season's over? Probably not but it's a long climb to get back into that even average-ish top half group, which I think they're going to have to do to start getting back into, hey, we're back near 500. Hey, maybe we're on the fringes of wildcard contention. And I think what was particularly concerning for me was they had a stretch here with a, with a prime opportunity to kind of get back into it. They had 13 straight games against the Orioles and Royals. The Royals have fallen off a cliff since their hot start. And this was the type of stretch where you said, hey, this is an opportunity to go 10 and three, 11 and two. 
they won the first three against the Orioles and then went four and six, the rest of them against the Orioles and Royals. And to me, that was a missed opportunity. Now you have to go in and play the Yankees and Astros and those have not gone well for them at all. They are hitting another soft spot in their schedule here with the Mariners and Rangers and the Reds who, you know, they're okay, but they're not great. But to me, that was the opportunity for them to get back into it and they missed it. And I think now you are starting to look more at, okay, who are they going to be trading at the deadline as opposed to who's coming back and what are they going to look like at full strength? It's just a very, very long climb at this point. I mean, they're 11 games out of the wild card right now. Not, not the division, 11 games out of the wild card. That's, that's a really, really, really big climb they have to make. Yeah, and historically speaking, you, you want your team to be hovering near 500. You know, a few games under is fine at this point. Like, even up to the 81-game point, if you're a few games under 500, you can, you can make a comeback. History shows, but like you're saying, they are so far behind that pace. The Nationals, to me, are actually the more interesting of these two, and they would be the team if you were predicting one of these teams to bounce back. And again, I don't think you would predict either of them to win their divisions, but, you know, get back into the fringes of wildcard contention. And there's two things in the Nationals' favor. The first is they're playing in a much weaker division. As much as they've struggled, they're much closer than the Twins are, both to first place in their division and the wildcard in the National League. And one of the things with the Nationals is you're starting to see some of their guys playing better. So you'll remember at the beginning of the season, they had a stretch where a bunch of guys had to go on the COVID IL, and then it took those guys a little while to kind of get back and round into form a little bit. And we're starting to see it. I tweeted out last night, Josh Bell over the last month has been crushing the ball. His overall numbers don't look great, but he was one of those guys who was sidelined, was on the COVID IL, took a few weeks to come back. Really from May 13th to June 13th, he's been great. He's rounding into form. We've seen Kyle Schwarber get hot recently. So we're starting to see the Nationals, at least offensively, some of their big hitters kind of rounding into form. There are holes in this lineup, but there are some bats that are doing some things. And then pitching-wise, it it is tough because Steven Strasburg right now, you you do not know when he's coming back. Uh, He's still being bothered by his nerve irritation. Patrick Corbin has just not been the same since the Nationals rode him really hard in the 2019 postseason. And again, they won a World Series because of it. I think he and everyone else will tell you it was worth it, but he just has not been the same since that postseason. So the pitching outlook is definitely a little sketchy. Joe Ross threw well last night. If you know he can kind of step it back up, then that, that will be helpful. But again, I'm not going to pick either of these teams to make the postseason at this point. There's one team out of these two that I said, I think I feel better about them getting back to 500 and maybe hanging on the fringes of wild card contention. I probably would pick the Nationals. I would go the Twins. I, I don't see the Nationals coming back. I, Scherzer is on the shelf right now, too. We don't know how serious his groin injury is. Um, I don't know. This team doesn't have a lot of upside, in, from, in my opinion. But... Um, the point, with, uh, the, the point with the Twins, though, for, for me, would just be that they do have games against the Tigers and the Royals and the Indians and the Mariners, maybe. <laughs> I haven't checked. But whereas the Nationals, they don't really have any cookies on their schedule. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. There's, not, there's a lot of parity in the NL East, but none of those teams are truly awful. It's a fair point. I think one other point in the Twins' favor, if you wanted to go that direction, is the Twins have a good farm system they can call up from. We've seen them already bring up some guys as reinforcements. Trevor Larnick has come up and shown some good things. They have some arms they can call up as well, the John Durans of the world, guys like that. So the Twins have reinforcements kind of at the ready. 
The Nationals don't. Uh, we've talked about this. This Nationals farm system is really, really, really bad. We saw that with the early performances of Fredericksburg and Harrisburg in particular. Cade Cavalli is a really good starting pitching prospect. And after him, there's just not a whole lot there. Jackson Rutledge hasn't pitched well. And, and again, he's starting there in A ball. He's not a guy that you call up and ask for help anyway. I mean, you can hope that Carter Keeboom and Luis Garcia have maybe figured some things out in AAA, but on the whole, there's not a lot of reinforcements to bring up. So that would be one thing in the Twins' favor, and especially as we get deeper into the year and we see how injuries, if they continue to pile up, it is something we will be keeping an eye on. All right, Matt, we're going to dive into probably the biggest question everyone wants to know. Can the Yankees be fixed? But first, we're going to take a quick break. All right, Matt. So we've talked about a couple of teams who have been surprises this season. Again, the Giants and the Red Sox on the good side, the Twins and the Nationals on the bad side. The team that has been an absolute roller coaster and has been the biggest source of consternation for a lot of people on the East Coast, and really baseball as a whole, is the New York Yankees. So the Yankees enter today in fourth place in the American League East. They are 33 and 32. They are eight and a half games back in the East now. They're only four games back of the wild card, but they've been outscored on the year. They have a negative run differential. The biggest question is, in your mind, can the Yankees bounce back? And really, can the Yankees be fixed? Yeah, I, I think they can. I mean, you know, they're they're at a disadvantage right now based on health. I mean, I think they're really missing Luke Voigt, among other players. Um, but they're not so far out of the out of the race. I do think the Rays and Blue and um Blue Jays are, are very good teams. Um, but, but these these Yankees are, are pitching fairly well despite not having, uh, you know, a clearly defined, like, I, I don't know. I mean, Garrett Cole is great, but the rest of the rotation, I don't know that you would point to anybody as being a, a standout. But I think certainly given the power and the, and the financial and the prospect resources they have, I think they are definitely still in this thing. So one point in the Yankees' favor, they actually remind me a little bit. The 2018 Dodgers were 33-32 and 32 through 65 games as well, and they obviously rallied to win the division and get back to the World Series. And the Dodgers, it was a little different. They were coming off a World Series hangover, but the similarities were the Dodgers had a lot of guys who were hurt and a lot of guys playing positions they shouldn't have been playing. They got off to that really slow start, and as they got healthy and guys slotted into their natural positions defensively, this team got better. So I'm not going to sit here and say the Yankees are dumb. They're buried. I know that's the popular take on New York talk radio right now. There have been quite a few teams who have hovered around 500 at 65 games, even at 81 games and gone on to win their divisions and make the world series. But in order to do that, the Yankees have to make changes. They cannot continue doing what they're doing. The biggest thing right now that is killing the Yankees above all else this team gives away outs. They give away way, way, way too many outs to be competitive in Major League Baseball. Right now, the Yankees had 31 runners thrown out on the base pass this year. The next closest team is 23. And it's not even like it's been a case of they're being really aggressive on first to thirds and the right fielder just has a cannon and makes a perfect throw or they're going second to home. It's not like they're being aggressive and getting thrown out because the outfielder makes a great play. They're making base running mistakes that if you did them in a little league, you'll get yelled at. And we just saw another one on Sunday 
Rubio and Odor, runner on second, no one on first, routine ground ball to the shortstop, and Odor breaks for third and gets caught in a rundown. It's like, what are you doing? And not only that, it's the second time that's happened to the Yankees in two weeks. It's just one of those things where it's basic, basic base running things. It's really kind of stunning to see at the major league level happening over and over again. So that's the first part of it. The other part of it is the Yankees right now entering today as of this podcast, their fielding percentage is 24th in Major League Baseball. And no matter how you want to measure their defense, the number of errors they've made, their fielding percentage, advanced metrics, the eye test, however you want to do it, this team has not been good defensively. So they're giving away a boatload of outs on both sides of the ball with errors and with the base running. And it doesn't matter what level you're at, Little League, Pony, high school, college, minor leagues, major leagues. You cannot give away outs and expect to be a competitive team. You just cannot do it. And and all the things we talk about with spin rates and launch angle and advanced analytics, that's all third, fourth level stuff. A foundation of baseball, of successful baseball is you cannot give away outs. If you do that, nothing else matters. And the Yankees right now give away outs like they're Halloween candy. Until they fix that, that needs to be the 100% focus of this organization top to bottom right now. If they don't fix that, they're not getting out of fourth place. But if they fix that, and then you start to see guys get healthy, again, Luke Voigt comes back, he moves in to play first base, that moves DJ LeMahieu to second, gets Ruben Odor out of the starting lineup. That's going to improve both the offense and the defense. So that will help. There's help coming in that regard, but they've got to fix the base running. And, And defensively, I will give them credit. They've gotten better. Early in the year, the lack of engagement was stunning to see. I mean, it was, again, it looked more like what you see from teams who were playing out the string in August. It reminded me a lot of the 2018 Orioles when outfielders were jogging half speed to shallow fly balls. And I remember one double play where second baseman just decided he wasn't going to cover the bag on a routine double play ball to the shortstop. That was interesting. (laughs) I mean, the Yankees were, were, were just playing so disengaged. And they have gotten better. Glaber Torres, who has you know been maligned for his defense, had two really nice plays over the weekend going up the middle, including one on Saturday against the Phillies that prevented a walk-off win in the ninth, and then also made a nice play to his right to rob Alec Bohm of a single. So the defense has gotten a little better, but the base running has to get fixed. You cannot give away outs. Just It cannot happen if you expect to win. How much would trading for Trevor Story fix, fix what ails the Yankees? Again, it would help them defensively, and he's a really good player offensively, but if you are still running into this many outs and wasting outs, maybe you go from fourth place to third place. Again, this is, this is a fundamental thing that every ounce of the Yankees energy, coaching staff, front office, everyone needs to be focused on fixing that 100%. Whatever method they think is best to do that, they know best. They know what they're working on behind closed doors. We don't have access to it, but it cannot continue as it has been. And and there's been a lot of empty platitudes. Oh, we believe in our guys. They'll turn it around. And if they're saying that publicly and behind the scenes, they're working aggressively to fix things, that's fine. But if those public statements are reflecting their attitude behind the scenes and they're taking a laissez-faire attitude to this of, oh, everyone will be fine. No, this, this is something that has to be fixed. It doesn't fix itself. This is, this is, this is a problem and they're gonna have to fix it if they, I mean, forget making the playoffs if they want to get out of third or fourth place. Do you think there's an easy fix? You mentioned Trevor Story. I mean, do you think it's as simple as acquiring guys? Because to me, there's some more fundamental things here that they have to fix organizationally. 
Yeah, I, you make a good point. I think if you shore up the the shortstop defense, which I know has been a point of consternation for the fans, Yankees fans, I think that goes a long way. Um, you know, they they still need some other solutions around the field. You know, but one Center of those field, is to play. say the least. Yeah, I mean, losing Hicks hurts them a little bit. Not having access to Voight for most of the season hurts quite a bit. So I think these are things they can address and will, and I'm sure they'll trade for a starting pitcher. You know, it's, you know, I don't know if it's going to be like a Max Scherzer level pitcher, but I'm sure they'll get somebody. They can add talent and that will absolutely help, but there's some foundational elements here that need to be fixed and we'll see if they do that. They've got to play better baseball and that comes down to not giving away outs on both sides of the ball. They're giving away too many and that gets fixed and they have a shot. If they don't, then they really don't. On the flip side, Matt, a team that is another high-revenue team that people were probably a little low on and have surprised a little bit this year is the Cubs. The Cubs enter today in first place in the NL Central, cruising right now. They're, they're coming off a really, really strong series against the Cardinals. They've won five straight. We've seen bounce backs from a lot of key players. Are you surprised or were people too low on them? I am somewhat surprised because, for the most part, the the rotation has not achieved what they wanted it to achieve. I think you would probably start there with most teams to assess how confident you are in them. Um, But, you know, it it appears that the offense has come together well and what might be the last hurrah for this group of Chris uh, Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, and Javier Baez. Um, So I would say yes and no. How about you? People were just too low on them. So let's go back. The Cubs are the defending National League Central champions. I know it was a short season. They're the defending NL Central champs. And they've made the playoffs five of the last six years. This was a good offense that it was not hard to predict was going to bounce back. Chris Bryant is a bounce back candidate. I mean, that was a really, really easy prediction. I made it in our preseason preview. A lot of other people around the game made it. You subtract Kyle Schwarber, you place with Jock Peterson. That's an upgrade. I mean, there's a lot of talent on this team and people were too low on them. By the way, the Cubs front office included was too low on them. And this goes back to the rotation and you Darvish. The issue with the you Darvish trade where it became a problem on a number of levels was, you know, Jen Hoyer came out and said financial considerations weren't a part of it. I said at the time, it's kind of a disingenuous statement because if that's the case and that's the best package you can get for you Darvish, you don't trade you Darvish. You say, okay, we're going to hold on to him because this package isn't enough. The only reason you make that trade is because there are financial considerations to make. And that falls on the Ricketts family and some of their statements about biblical losses and, and some of the issues facing them. This was a good Cubs team that with you, Darvish, yeah, they had a chance to once again win the division and potentially do they get to the NLCS? Possibly. And Depending on how things break, could they have banged their way to a World Series with some of their bats? Maybe, possibly, they had a shot. Now, you mentioned the rotation. Kyle Hendricks is really, really good. He's bounced back after a pretty slow start. You know, how much longer is Jake Arrieta going to hold up? Adbert Alzale is a really promising rookie, but he's also a rookie. So, again, if you Darvish was on this team, if the Cubs had a frontline starter, then man, this team really, really could be a potential World Series contender. And they had a potential frontline starter and they traded him. And to say that financial considerations weren't a part of it, if that was really the case, then you don't trade you Darvish if that's the best package you can get. Darvish has looked fantastic for the Padres, has he not? 
he's been fantastic. He's been one of the best pitchers in the National League. And again, just imagine what this Cubs team looks like with him at the front of the rotation. Mm-hmm. He's been excellent. He's been durable. He's been everything the Cubs need. Just some context when we talk about this Cubs rotation. They're starting their primary five. Not one of them has a an average or better ERA plus. Um, the the rotation, the starting pitching group as a whole, is 26th in the majors and wins above average according to Baseball Reference. So I mean, this is not a has not been a playoff caliber starting five. Can it be in you know the rest of the way potentially? But I probably would not bet that way. And as it stands right now, again, Trevor Williams was not good. He's on the injured list. Albert Owsley was doing some good things, but he's on the injured list. Jake Arrieta, his ERA has not been great. It's approaching five. No, Zach Davies has been fine. He's been Zach Davies. And Kyle Hendricks, again, he got off to a really, really poor start to the season. He's actually been good pretty recently. But, you know, if you swap out Davies for Darvish, then, yeah, this this is a team that – probably has a, a much, much better outlook. And I do think with the offense they have and knowing a lot of these guys are going to be free agents, you say, yeah, let's let's give it a shot. Again, they made the decision that payroll considerations took precedent over potentially competing for a World Series. And as a result, it's going to be tough for them to make a deep playoff run without that frontline starter. Now, can they win the Central? The answer is yes. Again, the Cardinals have been hit very, very hard by injuries, especially in the starting rotation. The Brewers are getting healthy. They were hit hard early. They're a competitive team. They're a good team. Um, you know, could the Brewers finish ahead of the Cubs? Yeah, absolutely. They're currently tied with the Cubs for first place right now. Could the Cubs finish ahead of the Brewers? Yeah, I think both scenarios are equally plausible. So this is a good team that that could have been better if they just kept the guy they had. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think I picked the Brewers preseason to win the division. I, I, I would still stay with them. Matt, there are a couple of other teams as of right now that are under 500 that going into the season, the general thought was they probably would win their divisions. And I think most people would have been surprised if you picked them to finish on the outside looking in of the postseason picture. Those are the Cardinals and the Braves. Every year we do see teams that make a second half run. As of right now, they're both under 500. Do you think either of them makes the playoffs or, or is there someone else who's currently under 500 you're looking at as a candidate to make a run and get to the postseason? Um, yeah, I like those picks. I think uh, to, to some extent, the ways in which the Braves have fallen back were predictable. You know, they were going to see regression in that rotation in both ends. I think the offense will get will tick up to where maybe not the level it was last year, but it will tick up. So I definitely could see them in the playoff picture. You know, same with the Cardinals; they seem to always find a way. A well-run organization. I might point to the Reds as another team. They're one game over, so they don't technically fit the definition, but they're also a team that really needs to continue putting its chips in for this year because this is what they've been strategizing for the last couple of years. So there's no reason to stop now. So that'd be another team hovering near 500 I would look at. We talk about teams giving away good players. They non-tendered Archie Bradley and got rid of Rysel Iglesias in a salary dump. And now they have one of the worst bullpens in baseball. So some of that is the Reds and their own decision-making. And again, the financial ramifications of the pandemic played into it. But general rule, if you give away talent or let it walk away for nothing, you're 
probably going to make yourself a worse team or have a really big hole you have to fill. One team that I talked about them at the beginning of the year, they kind of fit this as well, is the Angels. So Mike Trout went down, and I think the general assumption was the Angels were done. And, you know, we talked about the Twins having an opportunity to kind of get themselves back into it, that soft spot in their schedule, and they just kind of missed the window. Well, the Angels have hit a soft spot in their schedule, and they have absolutely taken advantage. The Angels have now won 11 of their last 14 games, and with that stretch, they have put themselves back over 500. Do you see a scenario where the Angels make a run here, and they're the team that, again, we're not technically under 500, but they find a way to slip into the postseason picture? Uh, sure. I would expect a lot of their hitters to kind of come come back up to par. Uh, we've seen Jared Walsh is no fluke. We've, we've established that. You know, Trout will return. Uh, Rendon cannot continue with this clip. He will definitely tick up. I think David Fletcher will as well. Uh, on the pitching side, are you as confident in the pitching holding together? Well, what's happened is really what's fueled this run is a lot of the pitchers have been pitching a lot better recently. Griffin Canning, Andrew Heaney, Dylan Bundy had a good start the other day after not pitching well. Patrick Sandoval has come up. Even Jose Suarez has been effective out of the bullpen. Guys who have really struggled at various points in the past, they're pitching well. We're going to really find out what this team is capable of here in the next few weeks. So I talked about the soft spot in their schedule. They did most of this damage against the Royals, Mariners, and Diamondbacks, three teams who are not real contenders. Now the Angels have a three-game series against Oakland coming up. Then they get four games against Detroit at home. But then you go to the Giants, you go to the Rays, you go to the Yankees. They have a series with the Red Sox coming up. So the schedule is about to get a lot tougher. And I think we're about to find out who the Angels really are. But as of right now, again, they hit a soft spot in their schedule and, and give them credit they took advantage. I mean, this has been a, a really, really good run for this team. And if they can continue pitching as they have been, because you're right, Anthony Rendon, this time with an injury, he's been heating up. David Fletcher is not this bad. He has some swing things he has to work through. This offense is a top 10 offense and run scored. There's no concern about the offense. It's the pitching. And if they can pitch as they have been, then yeah, this team has a chance to, to hang around 500. You get Mike Trout back in August and maybe you go on a run if they kind of fall back into what they were before once they start facing teams with some really potent offenses. Again, you have Oakland. There's there's dates with Boston coming up. Uh, you know, the Rays and Yankees for whatever their offensive problems. I mean, they're better offenses than the Mariners and Diamondbacks are right now. So we're about to find out. But I think they're at least interesting, just the fact that they've pulled back up above 500. And, and frankly, right now, they're one of the hottest teams in baseball. I mentioned 11 and three of the last 14. You can extend that back 13 and five in their last 18. They, they've really turned on the jets here when I think most people left them for dead after trout got hurt. Yeah. Um, and they, they do have a, a, a number of competitors for that wild card spot. That one of the two wild cards between the Astros and all those teams in the AL East. I think you would consider every team, but the Orioles a wild card contender. Um, so they're going to have to um, hold steady during this rough stretch of the schedule they have coming up. Yeah, it's going to be telling. All right, Matt. So we've got, depending on the team, 90 to, to 100 games left in the season. One team, the Mets, has more than 100. 
what are you looking forward to most here the rest of the season? Again, I'm just thrilled that we have more baseball ahead because at this point last year, the season was over and we still have so much more to look forward to. Yeah, I think seeing some of these surprise teams continue at this pace, you know, we talked about the Giants and the Red Sox. That's going to be exciting to watch. The Padres are always exciting to watch. Um, the White Sox are playing very, very well. We haven't discussed them here, but they are legitimately a great team. Watching them is going to be exciting. Like, if I had to pick one, uh, I don't know. Uh, perhaps the White Sox, I guess. Yeah, it really is remarkable. There's been a lot of focus on Tony La Russa and his flubs, both tactically and uh, verbally. But peel the curtain back. The White Sox lost Aloy Jimenez. They lost Luis Robert. They just lost Nick Madrigal. And they're one of the best teams in baseball. As of right now, they have the second best record in the American League. They have the best run differential in the American League. They have the best run differential, actually, in all of Major League Baseball. I mean, the fact that the White Sox have lost as many standouts as they have and have been, by any measure, one of the two, three best teams in baseball for the majority of the year, I think that is quite a testament to them and, and a, you know, something that they deserve credit for, from the players, management, all the way down. It seems like a lot of people are picking on them, but you look up and most teams would – love to be where the White Sox are right now. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, they made some bets on pitchers that have paid off huge, you know, Carlos Rodon, most notably, but you know, they also signed Lance Lynn, Dallas Keuchel. They've all been great for them. So yeah, well they, uh, the, the trade for Lance Lynn was, was a really, really good one for them. Again, you know, Dane Dunning's a promising young prospect, but you look at where they are right now, they needed that front of the rotation workhorse to go pair with Dallas Keuchel and Lucas Giolito, and they got him. Lance Lynn has been absolutely fantastic this season for the White Sox without a lot of fanfare again. So I think people are more focused on some other pitches around Major League Baseball, but his ERA is the lowest in the American League. So he's been the ace they traded for, to be sure. I think the biggest thing I'm going to be looking for is just seeing some of these individual accomplishments. I mean, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. right now, leads the triple crown categories in the American league. Uh, really he leads both the traditional and sabermetric triple crowns. He leads the American league in batting average, home runs and RBIs. And he also leads it in batting average on base percentage and slugging percentage. Yeah. I want to see if Vladimir Guerrero jr. Can win a triple crown at age 22. You and I talked about it before the year that this was a big breakout candidate. He lost weight explosiveness in his swing got better. His bat path got better. Everything got better. Just more athletic in his swing all the way around. And we're seeing the results it's been really, really impressive to watch. I mean, Fernando Tatis Jr. has missed a fair bit of time. He's had two stints where he was on an IL, one for COVID, one for his shoulder. And I mean, he's got a chance to go 40-40 despite missing that time. I think 50-50 probably is a little bit of a stretch, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, I want yeah, I would love to see. I think that's going to be fun to watch if Tatis go 40-40. And I mean, the biggest thing of all is Shohei Otani. It is not hyperbole. We are literally seeing things that have not been done since Babe Ruth. I mean, pick your favorite stat about no player has had X many strikeouts and X many home runs in a season since Babe Ruth. It's, it's all Shohei Otani. Right now, he's got 17 homers through 60 games and ERA that is all the way down now to 2.85. I mean... Yeah, I definitely want to see, can Shohei Otani hit 35 home runs and finish with a sub-3 ERA while making 28 starts? I mean, to me, those are the three storylines I'm going to be watching. Yeah, that Tatis one is a good one because if he were to lead the league in home runs and stolen bases, 
that has not been done since 1932. Chuck Klein did it for the Phillies. So that would be truly historic. Yeah, and Tatis leads the NL in both right now, and uh, there's no reason to suggest he's going to slow down as long as he's on the field. That, that's always been the thing with him. Uh, he's had a couple different injured list stints, uh, has never played more than 84 games in a season, although last year that wasn't his fault. He played the whole season last year. Just seeing how it all holds up over 162, it can be a bit of a dangerous game projecting, oh, so-and-so is on pace for this because fatigue sets in, the dog days of summer set in, injury sets in, but... Nonetheless, I think those are three players right now who are just a tremendous amount of fun to watch. And I think from an individual level are all guys worth watching among many others. I mean, what Ronald Acuna Jr. is doing, what the Reds do of Nick Castellanos and Jesse Winker are doing. Of course, what Jacob deGrom is doing on the mound. Hopefully this flexor tendonitis turns out to not be any sort of recurring thing. He said he's going to make his next start, no problem. So uh, there's a lot of great baseball being played, and I think that's important here. You know, as we're talking about all the issues facing the game and things that probably do need to be addressed. Again, I go back to less action than ever. Well, time of a nine-inning game is the longest it's ever been. It is something that needs to be addressed head-on. It won't just fix itself. But even in that context, there's an incredible amount of talent on the field, and, and it's been a very, very fun season so far. And I, for one, am looking forward to what's coming next. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for today's episode of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Matt Eddy, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody.